brothers and sisters, I want to ask you for a moment to contemplate, to think about what in your mind characterizes heaven. What is it that defines this place that is our telos, our end, where we're headed as we believe in Jesus Christ? What is heaven to you? I fear that too often as believers, our vision of heaven is just as misplaced as that of any number of religions that we count to be false. We know that there are visions of heaven out there that are purely sensual. We think about the 30 virgins promised in Islam to those who might die by way of jihad, or the interplanetary procreation promised to faithful Mormons. And these visions of heaven we know to be false, but I think that very often our own vision of heaven as believers is just as sensual. I've told you this story before, but once when I was working in restaurants, one of my Christian co-workers was, um, well, discussing uh, faith and heaven and Christ with another individual, and he said, hey man, I want to go to heaven. When I'm in heaven, I'll say, give me a donut, and I'll have a donut. I was struck by this perhaps being the very worst apologetic for heaven that I'd ever heard before. It's one of those sorts of things you want to distance yourself from when you're present as a believer, but you got to own it because we are one body in Christ. Today we're going to read about the contents of heaven. We're going to read about them and it has significantly more to do with what we will be and what we will be doing than it has to do with some sort of illustrious context marked out in the ways that the world thinks of an illustrious place. So please, turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 13. I'll go ahead and read these verses after we pray. So let's bow our heads. Mighty God, too often our ideas about what would be best, too often our greatest anticipations are misplaced. Lord, King of Kings, We lapse into a way of thinking that is so prominent in the world round about us that very often our thoughts are indistinguishable from those of our neighbors. God, we pray that we might be lifted up today. We pray that we might be taught to love heaven and love as we will in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray by your spirit. Amen. Turn with me now and go ahead and follow along if you have your Bibles. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Bow your heads and (laughs) please be seated. (laughs) Wrong command. Trinitas Church, to appreciate this chapter, we have to have a little bit of the taste in our mouth of what was going on in the church at Corinth at this time. We've discussed this for many years at this point, or really two years at this point, 
in some respects, it's a little taste of the very opposite of heaven when we consider what's been going on here. In short, the Corinthian church has begun to fret that under Paul's leadership, the church seems weak, ignoble, unsophisticated, and poor. Their desire is simple. They want a church with a better face that is going to meet the desires of an up-and-coming Corinthian culture the better. They want a church with a better face. A church that is wealthy in many respects, wise, strong, and noble. And this church has therefore become Paul's own unrelenting critics. They count themselves to be more wise, more dynamic, more gifted than Paul. They seem to have assumed for themselves this title, not only of apostles, but of super apostles, as they apparently call themselves, as Paul alludes in 2 Corinthians 12, 11. The presumption is simple. We can do Paul's job better than Paul does, and we can do without him. Paul, therefore, opens this chapter a great, a great reflection on love in responding to these sorts of dispositions. In verses 1 through 3, Paul makes this basic point, no matter what way that we might progress as individuals or as a church, if we do not proceed from a disposition of love and grow in love, it is useless. Take that in, friends. No matter what you're doing to educate your children in the Lord. No matter what you may be doing with the work of your hands to bless other people. No matter what you might be building in your business, it is meaningless. It is meaningless if it does not proceed from and if you do not yourself increase in love. Paul goes on to great, provide 15 descriptors of what this love is that matters preeminently above all else. We saw about three weeks ago uh, what this description of love was. Love, we are told in verses 4 through 7, is patient, which means that it involves a sort of happy waiting for others to grow and advance. Love is evidently kind, says Paul. That means that the words and the actions which flow out of us will work to the good of our neighbor rather than tear them down. Love is an envious That is to say, it does not desire most of all other people's position, power, accomplishment, or circumstances. Love, we are told, does not brag about our abilities or our superiority, whether in accomplishments already brought about or in things that we might do. Love isn't even arrogant so that beneath the surface, whether we've mastered our words in our heart, we suppose ourselves to be superior to our neighbor. We're even told that love is not rude. It doesn't shirk politeness and orderliness in honor of authority. It doesn't do that. Love's not selfish, we're told. It doesn't ask the question, primarily, how can I alter reality to better suit me? It's not easily provoked. That's to say it doesn't wear its annoyances on its sleeves for all to see. Love does not keep an account of wrongs as if with a view to repay them. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. That is the moral feelings of others, even if there are enemies, and it might help us to gain the upper hand. It rejoices, however, 
It rejoices in the truth, that is Jesus Christ, the gospel. And as a result, it is able to bear all things without complaining, as Elder Zion so eloquently preached two Sundays ago. That contentment is a fruit of love. It also believes in God's promises in all circumstances, and it hopes with subjective anticipation. It hopes for what God promises. What a beautiful and yet heavy description of love we have here. In these verses preceding the passage that we just read today, we can already draw out at least a couple of applications. The first is that true health and profit and worship Worshipfulness only comes by love. It's very important that we have this in mind, friends. I imagine some of you might be sitting back thinking, but Brant, I just know that if we had our own nice building with better lighting for sure, and Russell Wilson were a congregant, and we had cool small groups like a church skydiving team, and better and definitely shorter preaching, I just know we would have profit. I know we would have more people. We would have more. But the reality, friends, is that more people, more comfort, more feeling cool, and um, more time on your hands because the sermon was shorter, isn't love. And if the aim of the ministry is to increase in this attribute, those things do not necessarily accomplish that end. Only love increases love. I'll tell you a story. Uh, one time I walked into a church. It's not a church that any of you attended. I walked into a church and I heard the very worst music that I have ever heard in my life in any worship service, period. It was bad in every way that you could think of it being bad. It was downright horrible. My first inclination, just like all of yours, was to wince. My first inclination was to think who in the world would allow such a horrible musical performance to occur. And then I was struck. I was struck for a moment by the pastor's love for God because I knew that no matter what, he would bear the shame for that service like no one else. He would receive more complaints, more emails, more frustrations, whether it be from congregants or passers-by, and I was struck. This man had an evident love for God that would allow him, compel him to walk headlong into such circumstances. I was then struck by the love of that congregation for Christ. Apparently, the quality of the music that day did nothing to diminish their faithfulness in worship and being present. I was struck. And do you know what? By the end of the service, I found myself loving both that pastor and that congregation for loving Christ as they did. The things that we suppose necessarily make for profit are not always the things that profit in terms of the things that Christ says matters. A second application is rather straightforward. It's about what you can do when you can't. Friends, I don't don't know what your circumstances are today, but I know no matter who you are, there's something in your life that you can't. It doesn't matter. Something you can't. You can't change your income. You can't change your parents. That's a hard one. You can't change your neighbors. There are things that in certain respects about yourself you can't change, but here's what you can do. You can profit by growing in love. 
You can profit in those things that Christ and the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul says matters. You can increase. Even when you can't do anything else. To this great list of attributes of love, Paul adds this one, which will sustain our meditations today. Love is unique in that it is eternal. Love is, in fact, the very substance of our lives in heaven. Chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy or prophecies, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Here we have, perhaps, a triad of the most popular gifts in the church in Corinth. Paul declares that in contrast to giftings that we may have in this life, love alone will persist. If you've never considered this, every single spiritual gift will cease. It is of their very nature. They will not only cease in eternity, they cease not infrequently before we would like them to in the life at hand. Very often, David, a man who is prophetically gifted, says things like this in the Psalms. Oh Lord, do not keep silent. Oh Lord, don't keep being quiet. You've spoken to me in the past. And evidently, that gift of prophecy that he did exercise on so many occasions often was lacking when he needed it most. Even Jeff Buckley in his song, Hallelujah, has the lines, Well, there was a time when you let me know what's really going on below. But now you never show that to me, do you? No matter what gift you may have, there is a point at which it is not present when you would like it to be. Jesus said the same thing to his own disciples in Luke 17, 22. He says, days will come when you wish to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. He says, disciples, there is going to come a time where you long to have this access to me and my ministry and my miracles and yet... It's lacking. This is not just true of spiritual gifts that we may exercise as individuals. It is true of any miraculous phenomenon in the history of the church. When Israel went through the Red Sea, God fed them with manna from heaven. And yet we read in Joshua 5.12 that as soon as they entered the promised land of Canaan and they ate the produce of the land, that manna ceased. Can you think of how many hundreds of Thousands of generations of people starved and never saw manna from heaven. Because the gifts and the miracles and the abilities that we have in this life in time as opposed to eternity were not meant to persist forever. Same happens on large scale with gifts like prophecy. Some people will ask, Brant, why don't we accept the book of 1 Maccabees as part of our scriptures like the Roman Catholics do? Well, how about because the book of 1 Maccabees says that the prophets ceased to appear among the people in those days precisely when it was written. It says it is not a prophetic book because, in fact, prophecy wasn't happening anymore. For about four centuries, between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, Prophecy had ceased. 
Even if today you believe that the prophetic gift is in operation just as much as it ever was, it is conspicuous, it's noticeable that this gift of prophecy has provided us no information for how we might unite conservative Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Charismatics when we have so much in common in terms of what we believe about the authority of the word. No word has been given to us about how we would have greater organizational unity. Friends, this is true of every single ministry. If we have Charles Haddon Spurgeon, guess what? Our ministry cannot orbit around him because we will not always have Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Friends, if we have awesome facilities, our ministry cannot orbit around that because we are not guaranteed that we will always be wealthy. Friends, if we have an excellent production, our church cannot be defined and centered around that because we may not always even be healthy. In contrast to all of these, we might note that every single age of the church is bound together by a God-given, Holy Spirit-defined love for Christ and for neighbor. Every single age of believers is united around this attribute that we have expressed toward us from heaven and by God's spirit expressed toward our neighbor. Not only does this attribute of love define Christ's people in all ages, it differs from every spiritual gift in that the latter are always partial. Friends, every single gift that we have in this life is partial in that it fails to satisfy all of our desires. This Bible, a fruit of prophecy, it is a complete standard of faith and practice. That is to say, it tells us everything we need to know for salvation. But I'll tell you what, it does not tell us every single thing we want to know to our complete and utter satisfaction. The information we have in this book, therefore, is in a certain respect partial. It doesn't tell you everything you want to know. How many of you would like to know the timing of the second coming? You will search this book in vain to discover it. You will even read Jesus saying that no one knows the day or the hour and it will be hard for you to receive it. You will be like Peter, who after having heard that at the moment of Christ's ascension says, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? That you're going to set up your kingdom here and now in a tangible way? And Jesus has to say again, Peter, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. The knowledge is partial. Friends, there are doctrines in the Bible that bend the mind. And you might want to have greater comprehension of them, but your knowledge is in a certain respect partial. Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. God says, I've given you a whole lot of unambiguous direction and you leave the secrets to me. Friends, we want to know why we suffer inordinately, not infrequently. Even Jesus could say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Echoing the words of David, the reality is that the information, the knowledge, the prophecy that we have in this book is partial with respect to our full appetite for knowing. 
There are a couple of reasons for this, says Paul. The first is that we have a manner of knowing that is comparable to that of a child in relationship to an adult. It says in verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. If you're an adult and you have children, you have observed how your children think. And this very surface level understanding of whatever matter is presented to them. My kids not infrequently ask me, Dad, uh, what do you do at work? Well, my kids hear and what they see about my work is that I go to a coffee shop and I stare at books and I write. That's what Dad does. Dad gets up in the morning and goes to coffee. His job doesn't seem that hard to the youngest members of my family. It doesn't seem that difficult. Many of the men in this church are involved in the computer industry. Maybe you do some coding. Imagine your kids asking you what you do. Dad, what do you do at work? Well, I code computers. What does that entail? Well, I enter a lot of ones and zeros. You tell your kids that. You might find them with a blank sheet of paper with a bunch of ones and zeros on it when you get home from work going, Dad, look, I went to work too. Ones and zeros. Our kids' ability to comprehend what we are doing for them every single day that we work. It's not something that we should even expect from them in any great measure or degree. Not frequently, my youngest boy, Calvin, likes to play coach at home. He's watched my bigger kids go to soccer practice. And the coach tells them to do various things, to run around. He's been dying to go to soccer practice unlike any child you've ever known, because he's seen his bigger kids do it all the time. And he goes and he plays coach. And um, it's kind of an amalgamation of what he's seen at soccer practice and what Heather and I, he sees us doing when we come back from the gym. So when he does coach, he'll run around the yard and then he'll take something really light and bench press it like this, like 250 (laughs) times. Funny thing about when Calvin plays coach is that the coach actually is just Calvin. The coach is not there. And therefore, the coach never actually asks him to do anything that's that difficult or that he wouldn't actually want to do. His surface understanding of what I'm doing or what his bigger brothers and sisters are doing is childlike. Friends, that is what the Bible says our knowledge of God is actually like. We have this hubris to think that our minds are even crafted or made to appreciate or to fully comprehend a good answer to our deepest questions. When in fact, in our current condition and state, it's not. So one of the reasons we sometimes will speak about respecting elder men. Just hearing what they have to say and not arguing with them. Because the idea is that even as elder men, they know things in a way that younger men do not. They have a different way of knowing Paul's second rationale for why all of the things in this world are partial is that our manner of knowing is always mediated, as it were. We never look directly on God, the answer to all of our questions with our own two eyes. He says in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also I am fully known. Friends, consider how you know things when you look at them through a mirror. When you look at things in a mirror, you are automatically limited in your ability to investigate that object. All you see is one surface of any object you see in a mirror. 
You cannot go 360 if you're looking into a mirror and see something behind you. You see but one side of it. Depending on what side it is, it may or may not be the most desirable. Furthermore, when you look in a mirror at a person, even yourself, you only see what that person chooses to disclose on the very exterior of their body. Therefore, it can say in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that a face may be happy, but a heart may be sad. In a similar respect, we only know that which God has chosen to reveal to us. We do not have unlimited access to our creator to search the very depths of his person and being. We don't have that. And this is where Paul tells us that love presents us with something utterly different than all of our gifts of prophecy, of knowledge, of tongues, or whatever it may be. Love remains. Unlike these gifts that will be done away with in eternity because there is no longer any purpose for them, we will not need a preacher in heaven when we have Christ, the reality. We will not need a prophet to disclose secrets of God when we have the depth of God face to face. Something, we're told, remains. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We're going to focus on the greatest of these. Why do you suppose that Paul says that greatest of these is love? We're told in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. And I want to take you a step further. I want to set this idea before you for a moment. You've maybe never considered it. That loving is actually a manner of knowing our God. When we love Trinitas Church is those loved by God in Christ. We know God by participating in his very life. It is not that sort of intellectual knowledge which knows something by sight and from afar. It is a participation in the way that God is and has been for eternity. I'm not speaking about a generic love or affection. I am talking about a love that flows from God in Christ, knowing ourselves to have once been his enemies, but made his children by an infinitely deep love in God the Son. And then a love flowing out of us like a river toward our neighbor. When we are in that condition and state, we know God in a manner that is different than intellectual. We know God in a manner by way of participation. Very often in the Bible, we are promised to have face-to-face knowledge of God. And it is always married to a sort of character that we must have by and from God. Psalm 11.2 says, the upright will behold his face. Matthew 5.8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 John 3.2, it says, it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Friends, the Bible tells us that to know God in the depth of knowing, the deepest depth of knowing that we can have in this life, we must share in his very attributes, not least of which is love. God's moral attributes in distinction from his ontological attributes, what he is, 
as something that we can share with him. We might ask, what does this love look like? Noticeably, when Jesus goes to the cross, he says these words. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Consider this idea right here. Apparently, Jesus Christ going to the cross and pouring out his life for humanity is one of the deepest pictures for what God has been doing for eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have, as it were, been pouring themselves out into and for an indulgence of one another. Jesus goes to the cross and flows out his very life in an act of love for mankind. It is an insight into how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are glorified together in themselves. This tells us something, friends. We want to know God by way of love and participation in the sorts of things he does. Generosity is absolutely essential to it. Love as it has been known in eternity has always been God giving to and from God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to know God as those who love God and love neighbor means saying, I know that I am loved in Christ utterly and gratuitously, and therefore I will give as Christ gave. Too frequently, the thought is that this is strictly monetary, and it is not. Giving a judgment of charity to your neighbor, if ever you can, is a sort of blessed giving and loving. Giving giving a judgment of charity just the same as sharing your joy in Christ with your neighbor, giving life-giving speech before you burden them with your frustrations is an act of love. Holding your tongue and giving the gift of overlooking a fault is this sort of grand love of which the scriptures speak. Being considerate and responsive is a sort of giving out of love. But friends, I will tell you that if you labor to do these things without a keen vision of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, it will not be loving. It will be burdensome, toilsome, and painful ever and again. Friends, you cannot love that which evades your attention. And if Jesus Christ and the gospel and his love for you constantly evades your attention cannot love as Paul speaks of here. Friends, I will have you know this. Heaven is a place where all of our fears and doubts, all of our selfishness and inhibitions and envy and impatience and murderous hatred are removed and quite literally replaced with this positive ability to give to God and to our neighbor love without measure. This is what the Bible tells us heavenly existence and life will be like. We are told that it will be the stuff eternal life is made of. To use the language of 1 Corinthians 13, the only way for a finite creature like us to fully know an infinite being is by an eternal indulgence of him. And the only way for finite creatures to be fully known by their infinite creator is through the never-ending passage of time and his comprehensive knowledge of it. 
We're told in Psalm 16:11, therefore, in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Friends, if God were likened to an infinite system of trails, I want you to think of it this way. When we are in heaven, every single one of us will be able to explore God infinitely in an infinitude of different directions. And we will all never be finished, and we will all have our own unique love for that infinite depth that we know of him that has yet to be fully and completely exhausted. We will therefore love each other as unique witnesses to God. We will say to one another, I have known the infinite love of God in this way. And let me share it with you, brother, and share with me that infinite depth of knowledge and love that you have with God in your way. And in so doing, we will always be giving and receiving and enjoying our Lord. Acts 20, 35 says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I tell you, Christian, if it is blessed to receive Christ as your Savior in justification, it is unspeakably better to give him to others in your every thought and word and deed in sanctification. And it is even better to be given by God to your neighbor as a gift and expression of his love. It's just better. Our last thought ought to be how can we even begin to describe this love? Well, one brilliant monk by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux in the late 11th century, early 12th century, a man who is sometimes called the last of the church fathers because the way he wrote and the way that he thought was so deeply connected to the scriptures and not like a high scholastic science that he is considered the last of the fathers. This man was something of a prophet of divine love. When he was 22 years old, he convinced 30 of his friends, 30 of his friends to go and join a monastery to indulge a life of deeper knowledge of God's love. He spent his life in labor and in the vision of the world, that he would have a very austere life. So this idea of love that he had had almost nothing to do with the luster of the sorts of gifts that we so value. He opposed the luxury of the Pope while he lived a life that was, in so many ways, humble and frail. What this man did is he wrote 86 sermons on the Song of Songs, which many of you might know is a song between a lover and a beloved. And he had this basic insight that our romantic love for a a spouse proves that we can love more than we know. See, when you marry a person, you don't know that person in all their depth of being. Part of what you love about them is you know enough to make a vow to them, to be with them forever. But there's this mystery about them that you hope to indulge for the rest of your marriage and the rest of your life. That's what he understood. And he said, our love for God is more like that. We can love more than we know, friends. For eternity, we will always be loving that being with such perfect freedom and opportunity to indulge that it will be a sort of knowing itself. What this means, therefore, is that in heaven, take this idea with your mind, and it will be hard because it's not the normal sort of thing we think about. In heaven, the love with which we love God and neighbor will be more like food than anything else. 
Think about the satisfaction of eating and at one and the same time. Think about that glory in giving yourself to another and imagine, imagine that that act could be a life-sustaining food for you. Imagine if your love for God and neighbor were the very food that fed you. Imagine being nourished, sustained, and satisfied and enlivened to more activity by the spirit of love in you, acting through you. Imagine that the refreshment that you get from vacations, new toys, accomplishments came by the whole and complete giving of God's spirit through you. This is more like what heaven will be like than anything else. Our very life sustained in our self-giving by a God who saved us in his self-giving. When you understand that, you will understand the words of Jesus Christ who said this in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Have you been doing good, friends, but yet to enjoy it as life-giving food? Reorient your heart to Christ's love for you. And love in Christ as Christ loved you. Have you been cold and sour and bitter and feeding on the food of pure discontent? It will only yield the same thing in you. Friends, I simply say this. If you find yourself longing to be a person who tastes a bit of heaven in this life as one loved by Christ and loving in Christ, come to this table to feed on Christ as your food so that you may go about living on the same food that he says was obedience and love through the Father. My final word is for you if you happen to be here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to impress one truth on your minds. Ask yourself if you can deny this. Has any man in all of human history been so loved as Jesus Christ has? I ask you a very simple question. Has a single human being in human history sustained the hearts and affections of more men than Jesus Christ has? I tell you right now, not Moses, not Mohammed, not Buddha has billions of followers saying that I just long to be with him and in him, to love, be loved by him and to love like him. Ask yourself this question, has any man in history been so loved as Jesus Christ? You may be tempted to respond that perhaps no man has been so hated either. And I simply ask you, does not that therefore make this incredible love for him the more profound? This love that people have for Jesus Christ is not a facile, banal love for something bland. It is for a man who is profound, profound enough to divide. And yet he has sustained the affections of more people than any in human history. I set this before you because I think it actually makes the point so clear that no one in all of history loved like Jesus Christ loved. Ask yourself if you can deny that. Was it not clear that no one ever loved like he did? 
If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I will tell you there is a day that you will stand before God and you will be asked this question, was it not clear that no one ever loved as he did? Nor was so loved in return, was it not clear that he is the doorway into my temple? Was it not clear that he is my food? And why did you not receive him? Why did you not love him as he so loved? Ask yourself that question. Don't bear on it too long because the time is short. Christ is love and to reject him is eternal death. There's no life in it. I hope you will receive him today. Bow your heads with me. Holy God, we have, like the world, too often placed a premium on the things of this world that are partial and passing away. Lord, we have carried on, as the Corinthians have, with pride, impatience, anger and frustration, selfishness, disillusion that this world is not what we want it to be, nor, frankly, our friends, our family, our church, or, frankly, even ourselves. God, may we move out from this place in wonder that nevertheless we have been loved. Despite all of our failures, we have been loved. May each one of us leave this place ready to indulge a deep and life-giving union with you that comes from carrying on as Christ did, finding our food, our sustenance, our satisfaction in our fellowship with you, Father. God, may we leave this place is those who love you the more. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. Amen.